0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, North Carolina Potter is reviving an art form brought to America by enslaved Africans.
1: My granddaddy was a tombstone make down in the Spartanburg, South Carolina. And he started telling us about face jump. There was an ancestor in our family. They said she made
2: face jump.
1: It was a family history.
0: And the town of Hyman, Kentucky endured catastrophic flooding last July. We'll get an update on recovery,
2: there has been more hope now that we're getting more help, more homes built. Uh, just last week, uh, Knott County was able to obtain property by the Knott County Sportsplex, and they'll be building 57 homes out there.
0: We also talk with West Virginia poet Doug Van Gundy about disasters and their relationship to art. I don't believe that suffering causes great art. I think suffering causes suffering, but I think that art can help ease suffering. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia.
3: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More at
0: SolarHoller.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. You've probably seen pottery with the face on it somewhere. Maybe a decorative teapot, done up like a stern Uncle Sam. Or an elongated milk bottle with a sculpted face that looks a little like your brother-in-law. There are lots of examples of this type of art out there. From cheap souvenir shop knickknacks to museum-quality pieces that can sell for millions of dollars. Some of them are connected to African face jugs, an art that enslaved people brought with them to America. Folkways reporter Zach Harold traced the story of face jugs beginning in the basement pottery studio
4: of West Virginia artist Ed Clemick. The tools of Ed Klemmick's trade look something like what you'd find on a dentist tray. But that's not what he uses them for.
5: Uh, these are like slice of eyeballs in half. Uh, this one I can put like in the um, corner of the eye and the mouth. Maybe separate the teeth a little bit.
4: Now that makes him sound like some kind of homespun Dr. Frankenstein. But Ed prefers to work in clay. For over 20 years, his Shinson West Virginia pottery studio has been churning out all kinds of creatures. Some look like Santa Claus or gray man style aliens. Ed also has a penchant for making devils.
5: I almost like that guy right there. He's smiling, right? Did <laughs> You don't know why he's smiling.
4: <laughs> These characters appear on hand-thrown ceramic jugs about the size of your standard two-gallon milk jug. Ed makes faces on coffee mugs and cookie jars, too, and shot glasses, though due to their size, they only have one facial feature apiece, a nose, some lips, or a single unblinking eye.
5: So, you know, you have a drink with a friend, you say, here's looking at you.
4: Ed's face jugs, sold under the name Jughead Pottery, are well known in the West Virginia art scene. He's been featured in galleries all over and was juried into the state-run Tamarack Market, where collectors regularly snatch up his work. But Ed's journey to becoming a successful full-time artist was a long one. Growing up and then as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, he tried his hand at different art forms, painting, silversmithing, wood carving. Then came the Vietnam War, which derailed his plans for grad school. He ended up spending eight years in the Air Force, working much of that time as an illustrator. Once his enlistment was up, art remained a hobby as he worked a series of blue-collar jobs. As a carpenter, a window installer, and finally as a pattern maker at a foundry in Fairmont, West Virginia. About 20 years ago, news came that the foundry was shutting down. Ed was laid off. But instead of looking for another nine-to-five, his wife encouraged him to try the art thing full-time.
5: She told me, she said, if you don't know until you try it, so (laughs) go for it, dummy. (laughs) So I did. It it was a little bit of a struggle beginning, you know. I mean, you know, it takes time to get a, a business started.
4: At the time, Ed was working with Raku, a traditional Japanese style of pottery. But there wasn't a whole lot of interest in his work. Then he saw a TV program by the interior designer Lynette Jennings.
5: I forget what the name of the program was, but it was uh, about home decorating. And uh, she had a thing on there about uh, face jugs being very popular and collectible. It was a southern thing.
4: Inspired by that program, Ed started to make face jugs of his own. But as he'd learned, the vessels were more than just a southern thing. The art form has roots in Africa, having crossed the Atlantic in the minds and the hands of enslaved people. In fact, we can pretty much trace the tradition to a single slave ship, as historian Wayne O'Brien told me.
6: So in 1808, you were not supposed to bring any more enslaved Africans from Africa. Well, in 1858, 50 years later, a gentleman named Charles Lamar decided he wanted to reopen the slave trade. He said, catch me if you can.
4: Lamar found himself a racing yacht, dubbed The Wanderer, and set out for Africa.
6: So he he sailed over to uh, the Congo in West Africa in 1858, took about 400 um, Africans on board, brought them back to the U.S. Uh, The authorities did hear about it, but he outran them to the coast.
4: Lamar landed on Jekyll Island in Georgia. But even after escaping authorities, he had a big problem. He was in possession of dozens of people who did not speak English, had never had any contact with the West. It was obvious that they had been illegally trafficked, so he needed to disperse these enslaved people fast. A cousin took some of them up the Savannah River into South Carolina, eventually ending up in Edgefield County. Then, as now, the area was known for its potteries. Many of the people Lamar smuggled ended up making ceramics. And in their off hours, they started making traditional vessels from their homeland.
6: Somebody actually recorded that these Africans that just landed here are making these face, these grotesque face vessels. They call them face jugs. Almost all of these face vessels date to that time, after that time, after 1858.
4: One prominent feature of these jugs was their stark white teeth and eyes. These were made from kaolin a white silica clay also used to make fine china. The enslaved potters recognized it because they had it back home in Africa, too.
6: And in the Af- on the African uh, continent, that is the ingredient that gives the vessel power.
4: See, no one was selling face jugs at the time. These were meant for personal use in spiritual rituals.
6: Uh, these practitioners can reach to the spiritual world to get information. And they would use these objects uh, kind of as a tool.
4: And those kaolin eyes and teeth were essential for those practices.
6: The kaolin would be the battery in your phone. So without a battery, the phone would, you still have the object, but it won't work without the battery.
4: The power was largely cut off following the Civil War. Pottery is an expensive craft. And after the war, many black potters lost access to the materials they needed to make their art. White potters, meanwhile, saw the popularity of the face jugs and appropriated the art form. They started making the vessels to sell to tourists who came to see the post-war South.
6: Well, you know, it's the the sincerest form of flattery is imitation.
4: But once the art form was out of Black potters' hands, the history of face jugs as sacred objects started to be forgotten. Stories still circulate that the vessels were used to scare kids away from the beer or moonshine kept inside— even though enslaved people weren't usually allowed to have alcohol. The traditions were not lost completely, though. I mean, if black potters and their face-jug traditions could survive the Middle Passage and slavery, they could survive anything. Today, the black face-jug tradition lives on through a new generation of potters, like Jim McDowell of Weaverville, North Carolina. Jim grew up hearing stories about face-jugs.
1: And my granddaddy was a tombstone maker done. Down in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he started telling us about face Jim. There was an ancestor in our family, and she—they said she made face Jim. It was a family history, oral history.
4: Though he displayed artistic talent from an early age, Jim didn't take up pottery until he joined the army and was stationed in Germany, where he started hanging out at a pottery studio in Nuremberg. He continued his study of the art form back in the states.
1: I was at this university in uh, Pennsylvania. Indiana University of Pennsylvania. It was a white guy making face jugs, and I looked at that thing, and I said, "No, I think I could. I think I need to make it myself." So I started making them, but I put black features on it. You know, the scarification, the the uh, the big noses. You know, exaggerated and ears, and and use uh, glass for teeth or broken china plates. You know,
4: unlike Ed Kleemix face jugs. With their realistic, if exaggerated looking faces, the features of Jim McDowell's jugs are rougher, more reminiscent of the look of the original Edgefield face jugs. He once told the Smithsonian, My jugs are ugly because slavery was ugly.
1: I, I don't have any preconceived notions of what I'm gonna make. I have an idea like Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King or John Lewis. I look I put that I think that thought is there. But when I put the nose on, then I feel like I get influences from the ancestors. And I do certain things that that maybe I don't even realize I I'm, I'm versed in pottery as far as aesthetics and how to put it together. But the ideas, they come. They don't come from me.
4: Jim feels a particular kinship with David Drake an enslaved Edgefield potter whose work now sells for millions of dollars and was recently featured in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York.
1: But his pots are still here because the writings reflect what he was going through.
4: You heard that right. In a time where it was illegal to teach enslaved people how to read and write, Dave was making inscriptions on his pottery. And not just inscriptions, but poetry. Clever, funny heartbreaking poetry inspired by what was happening in his life. After Dave's master sold his son and wife to another slave owner in Texas, he inscribed a pot with this couplet, I wonder where is all my relations, friendship to all and every nation. He was pissed. Jim tries to channel his own frustration and anger into his face jugs. Some of his recent works have been inspired by the murders of Emmett Till and George Floyd.
1: I do it because if I don't do it, I feel like this story is going to die. Somebody has to tell, you know, even though people may not want to listen.
4: For someone with such a deep spiritual connection to this art, I asked Jim how he felt about the history of white potters co-opting it.
1: I I really don't. I'll be honest with you. I really don't have a problem with it.
4: He says he doesn't begrudge white potters who make face jugs because, well, everybody's got to make a living. And there are European traditions of ceramic vessels with faces on them. But remember what Wayne O'Brien told us? A traditional face jug without kaolin is like a phone without a charge. No power. Just an object. Well, to Jim, a modern face jug that isn't shaped by the black experience is kind of like that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fine to look at. It just doesn't have the same power.
1: They cannot put the spirit in the the ideas and the thoughts that I had, because they don't have that history. Their history is from England or Scotland or over there, you know. So I don't, I, don't, I don't quibble on it because you can't copy me.
4: For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold.
0: To see photos of Ed Klimick and Jim McDowell's pottery, visit our website, wvpublic.org. That story is part of our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To hear that story again or any of our other 130-plus folkway stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. For nearly a century, the John C. Campbell Folk School in Western North Carolina has been a center for traditional arts and practices. The school offers year-round classes on everything from class making and blacksmithing to gardening, woodcarving, and writing. Blue Ridge Public Radio's Lily Kanett visited the school's most recent artisan in residence, who's rediscovering her upbringing in the North Carolina mountains.
7: It's a misty, cool morning in Brastown, just outside of the Cherokee County seat of Murphy. The about 270-acre property features art studios, community space, and cabins for visiting artists like Carly Owens Weiss. I feel a very like kindred relationship to this landscape. Owens Weiss is a multidisciplinary artist currently in residence at the Folk School. She grew up in the Asheville area, but is now based in Boulder, Colorado. She says that being at the Folk School in Brasstown, has been a homecoming for her.
8: I consider Western North Carolina in general. It's like my home. It's the place that I grew up in.
7: Owens-Weiss works in what she calls soft sculpture, meaning she's mainly a fiber artist who focuses on embroidery, beadwork, and other forms that are more traditionally crafts made by women. Owens-Weiss studied at the Royal School of Needlework in the United Kingdom. I like to
8: tell people that I'm trying to combat the stigma of women's work through my pieces. Even though I do identify as a woman, it's just hand embroidery has been a medium that's been so gendered throughout its entire existence. And therefore, it's been not taken seriously, even though I feel like it's just as effective as communicating ideas as any
7: other art form like painting, drawing, etc. Owens Weiss says she's been embroidering nonstop since 2016, and in the last year, she started moving away from jewelry and embroidery to sculpture and a fine arts focus. So, I had been doing a lot of research on this the 17th century Dutch still life tradition and
8: this concept of vanitas, which was basically pointing at how you have these like beautifully rendered paintings of foods and like objects, but then like the more that you look at them, you notice these tiny details like bugs that are eating the food or like the food is half eaten, so like how long has it been out. And this was really just to kind of draw attention to like troubling realities of the time, as well as remind us of the transience
7: of life. Spread across her kitchen table in the cabin are some of her unexpected beaded sculptures, a bloody knife, deli meat, and an egg. She said the pieces took on a political life of their own as she thought about the connections between the ripening of food and her own body.
8: We were at a point where Roe v. Wade was also being overturned, so I was also kind of drawing parallels between that experience and within my own body, and so I just kind of formed this kinship with the egg, and just kind of went from there in using specifically meat and dairy
7: products as vehicles for representing the body. During the residence, Owens-Weiss says she's been able to learn new skills like metalsmithing and oil painting. Much of the residence has been spent working in her studio in downtown Murphy at Olive's Porch. The space opened in April 2022 as a bridge between the secluded Brasstown campus and the local community in Cherokee and Clay counties. The Folk Schools Communications and Brand Manager, Robert Grand, said the school reached out to the community to find out what it needed.
4: We had these community listening sessions in 2019 and essentially asked the surrounding area, what do you want to see from the folk school? And a lot of people said they wanted to see a space in town. They felt disconnected because our campus is so secluded and so rural.
7: The space also offers workshops and classes for the community, as well as the work of regional artists.
4: I think what's pretty magical about the folk school and what you see in this museum is that our mission has pretty much not changed over 100 years.
7: The next residency will start in June. Applications for 2024 will be open in July. I'm Lily Kanep, BPR News.
0: Many of us who live in the eastern half of the U.S. can instantly identify the distinctive droning of the cicada. They're noisy, and they come in waves, but we don't get them every year. Cicadas have a very long life cycle for an insect, but spend most of their lives underground. Different broods emerge every 13 to 17 years. 2023 is supposed to be quiet, although it seems like at least a few misfire every year. In the spring of 2016, a massive brood of cicadas emerged in northern West Virginia. Their appearance inspired a West Virginia University professor to take a closer look at their wings. And that led to a recent discovery that may be helpful to humans. Caroline McGregor reports
9: The 17 year cicada emergence in 2016 was experienced in Maryland, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. America, it turns out, is the only country in the world where periodic cicadas remain underground for so long. These periodical cicadas don't spend all those years hibernating. Instead, they remain alert and highly active in their wingless nymph forms, busy excavating tunnels and feeding on sap from tree roots. Terry Gullion is a professor of chemistry in the West Virginia University Eberly College of Arts and Sciences in Morgantown. He remembers the event in 2016 by the sheer number of the insects covering his deck.
10: You know, I was just looking at them, and of course I had all these uh, dead cicadas laying on my deck and everything, so I thought, uh, well, maybe it'd be interesting to take a look at their their wings using the methods that I've been using for other chemical-type problems.
9: Gullion's study of insect wings turned into a lengthy research project, Obtaining samples became a challenge, but the wings of cicadas turned out to be easier to handle.
10: Fortunately for us, they're fairly large wings, so they're easy to dissect. So we dissect the membrane from the wing uh, just using a razor and a microscope, uh, so it's quite tedious.
9: To date, insect studies have mostly focused on exoskeletons of insects, with little attention paid to the actual chemical composition of their wings.
10: You know, if you look at an insect, it, it looks like a series of veins which uh, encapsulate or compartmentalize these very thin membranes, often very clear. And it turns out the membranes are super thin. They're only microns thick, and so they're thinner than the human hair. So, you know, getting enough samples sometimes is a problem, and it certainly was a problem for us.
9: As Gullion and his team continued to examine the wings, they discovered the wing membranes were not composed primarily of protein, but were far more complex than previously thought. Using nuclear magnetic resonance, Gullion was surprised to learn that despite their apparent fragility, the membranes of insect wings turned out to be unusually strong and durable.
10: I mean, if you just think of, like in North America, the monarch butterfly flies from, what, Canada all the way down to Mexico. You know, we think of these things as fragile, but uh, obviously they're they're not.
9: Gullion's research led to the discovery that insect wings are composed of the highly resilient molecule known as chitin,
10: So it's the second most abundant biopolymer on the planet, uh, only behind cellulose. This is, of course, the building block of a lot of plants. Uh, Chitin, if you look at uh, lobster claws, crab shells, things like that, well, that's predominantly chitin. It's a very hard material and very protective.
9: Gullion is seeking funding for the next step of his research, determining the molecular structure of wings, which he said could lead to further advances in technology using nature as a guide. The answers may help shed light on how insects endure tremendous amounts of forces while remaining thin and flexible.
10: What drives some of the interest in this is how do you have such a very thin material that is extremely lightweight yet very strong? So in a sense nature can maybe help guide you to make better synthetic materials that have similar properties.
9: Once a clearer picture of the molecular structure of wings is known, Gullion envisions a variety of applications including the agriculture industry. One includes pesticides that target or weaken specific species but don't harm beneficial insect pollinators like bees. The technology could even extend to the application of micro-aerial vehicles or drones for use in search and rescue situations like earthquakes.
10: You know, if you can imagine uh, in the future very small things that can fly between all uh, the rubble and everything and get down and take a visual of what's going on, uh, that could really help a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities that one can envision
9: Gullion said his research is evidence there's a lot more to be learned from nature and the importance of insects that have been flying for millions of years.
10: For every human being on the planet, there's a hundred million insects. Uh, maybe not in my backyard, for me, but, you know, if you just think of jungles and uh, the tropics and things like this, or even when you're out in a forest, you turn over a leaf, and all of a sudden there's something under it. It's uh, just mind-blowing, the, the numbers and the quantities and a variety of, of insects.
9: Gullion said his research helped him to understand that taking insects for granted will not bode well for humankind in the future. In addition to aerating the soil, pollinating blossoms and helping control plant pests, they recycle nutrients back into the soil.
10: A famous naturalist, uh, E.O. Wilson, pointed out that if all humans disappeared from the planet tomorrow... Basically, what would happen to the Earth is it would just revert back to what it was 10,000 years ago, when there were very few people on the planet. If all the insects disappeared uh, tomorrow, the planet would be in total chaos.
9: Reporting for West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline mcgregor in Charleston.
0: Former Inside Appalachia host Jessica Lilly once told me she grew up looking for letters on the wings of cicadas. P for peace, W for war. If you get any cicadas this year or next, let us know what you're seeing. Write us at InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Coming up, we visit East Palestine, Ohio, the site of a chemical train derailment. The town recently heard from the U.S. EPA. It had soil testing results. Anybody who gave us access to the properties, the good news is that on your property, the
5: soil sampling results looks really good.
0: Still, some residents remain unconvinced that East Palestine is safe. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
3: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and 6 master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.
0: After the February train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, the U.S. EPA tested the soil for chemicals. At a recent public meeting, the government agency shared the results. But some people came with their own results, saying they're still being exposed to toxins. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant reports...
11: The crowd was significantly smaller than EPA meetings in the weeks right after the fiery derailment. Instead of many hundreds of residents, a couple of dozen were in the pews of a local church. They were listening to EPA's response coordinator, Mark Dernot, describe the government's findings of its community soil sampling.
3: Anybody who gave us access
5: to the properties, the good news is that on your property, the soil sampling results looks really good.
11: He was talking about testing the soil for chemicals that could have resulted from burning five train cars full of vinyl chloride, including dioxins. These are highly toxic chemicals that can linger in the environment for years and cause cancer and other health issues. The community pushed for regulators to test for dioxins in the soil. The work was done by Norfolk Southern under direct supervision of EPA. They sampled soil in a one-mile radius of the derailment site and an additional two-miles To the southeast at nearly 150 locations at each spot they took shallow and deeper samples
5: the shallow soils uh, look consistent with the deeper soils and, and the levels are really low
11: lifelong resident bill strohecker was pleased with the results i'm
5: excited I get to grow a garden.
11: Joe Hecker lives about a mile from the derailment site and was especially glad that soil in the park was found to be safe because he encouraged children to search around the park for Easter eggs.
5: We still feel safe that uh, we can stay here. We've been to the park, been to the Easter egg hunt, and uh, the bunny rabbit. Actually, I was the bunny rabbit for the Easter
11: egg hunt. <laughs> Others at the meeting were not as satisfied. They want more answers. Eric Koza lives just a third of a mile from the derailment site and said he's sick and gets bloody noses. He recently had his urine tested for chemicals from the derailment.
2: I just took my urinalysis on my urine test
5: um, two weeks ago, so it took a week for me to get it back. So I have vinyl chloride in my urine.
11: Koza shared his test results with the Allegheny Front, as well as a chemist's analysis. It says Koza had metabolites of vinyl chloride in his urine, which indicates he could be exposed to the chemical. It could come from smoking, and Koza does smoke half a pack a day, but he says it would take a lot more than that to create the levels found in his results. Linda Murphy, who lives 2.8 miles from the derailment site, says vinyl chloride metabolites were also found in a test of her urine, though she did not share her results. According to the CDC, vinyl chloride is quickly eliminated by the body within days of exposure or less, so Murphy thinks she's still being exposed to it somehow, most likely from the chemicals from the train derailment.
7: I'm just very skeptical. I just don't understand how everything has just disappeared and it's, it's gone and we should have no concerns. Just
11: I have reason to have concerns, so it just doesn't make sense. EPA's Mark Durno understands her frustration.
5: That's what makes it hard because I don't know where you would be getting exposed. That's the problem. We're not seeing it in the air. We're not seeing it in the water and we're not seeing it in the
11: soil. Durno recommends residents go to the health clinic set up in East Palestine by the state of Ohio to be tested, but the clinic spokesperson could not verify what lab tests are offering to residents. Erin Haynes is chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at the University of Kentucky. I truly wouldn't anticipate
8: there to be a marker of vinyl chloride in urine, that's not expected.
11: Haynes says urine tests like this should have been done days after the incident, not now, months later. She sees a disconnect between the environmental findings and these urine test results.
12: So there has been air, there's been water sampling, but there's not a coordinated health component with, let's put it all together.
11: Haynes hopes regulators learn from this for the next toxic chemical disaster. Linda Murphy wishes she could just put all of it behind her. Do you spend your time worrying about this, or do you spend your time living your life? Because what are you going to do about it? What, what, what do you, what's your options? For The Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant.
0: The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. West Virginia native Jillian Howell began making movies in grade school. Howell got to Hollywood, but she still wants to tell West Virginia stories. WVPB's Randy Yoey spoke with the filmmaker about breaking into the business with Disney and two of her passion projects. You know, it seems your passion for
3: filmmaking began in Scott Depot, West Virginia at a young age with a toy that my sister had as well. Tell me about that.
12: When I was seven, Santa Claus brought me a Barbie video camera, and I made videos constantly with my dolls, with my family. I taught myself stop animation with my brother. I was just constantly making things. It wasn't really until YouTube started that I really started making things that other people were able to watch. So growing up in that YouTube boom, I feel like was really crucial to me. In high school, I created Music Video Monday, which was also on our morning announcements, but kind of took off on the internet as well. There wasn't a lot of like film opportunities for kids my age. So it started with making my own opportunities. But then when you make something, you know, not everyone's going to like it, but to have it embraced by the student body and even future student bodies is something that has been really, really special to see.
3: You're now with Walt Disney Animation Studios in Los Angeles. Tell us about that job.
12: I got my first internship through a West Virginia connection at Disney Parks internal ad agency where I interned and then just kept pounding the pavement. I knew I wanted to work in animation production management and didn't know even when I was in college that that was a career path. So I've been at Disney Animation since 2019. I started as a production assistant on Frozen 2 and went on to be a production assistant on Riot and the Last Dragon and then a production coordinator on some theme park attractions, Strange World, and now working on Wish.
3: Even though you're in Los Angeles, it seems your heart remains in West Virginia. You're ready to debut a three-year-in-the-making documentary on your childhood best friend, Zane. Tell us about his story.
12: Zane and I met in fourth grade when he was seated next. To me at Scott Tays Elementary School, I had never really had the opportunity to become friends with someone who had special needs and hadn't really seen anyone in the mainstream. I feel like Zane was this bridge that connected usually what is a self-contained classroom to the mainstream classroom. And Zane is very unabashedly joyful and friendly and hilarious. I'd been thinking about making a character piece on Zane and decided to kind of just go for it. But by the time that we scheduled the first interview, just to kind of see where the story went, Zane had lost his job that he had had for four years at Lowe's. A very important thing about Zane is that he is one of the hardest workers I've ever met. He just lost his job to regular layoffs. It wasn't anything that he did personally. So I think that made it even harder for him. But a key component in Zane's story and in Zane's success. It's his mom, Anne. She tirelessly looked for opportunities for Zane and continued to try to break down doors for him. It ended up being a three-year project, mostly because of COVID, but also it really took on a new life when I was seeing every opportunity that was coming close to fruition wouldn't work out for some reason. He always says kind of like just what's on his mind. So I wanted to capture that character, that really charming character, but also show his mom's tenacity to be able to continue to move forward in a situation that is really frustrating and is something that isn't just happening to Zane. You know, 80% of folks with special needs are often... Unemployed, and I just want people to fall in love with him. The best way I know how to do that is through film and through sharing his story.
3: Talk about your online social hub, Shine On WV.
12: So once I started realizing there were so many West Virginians working in important artistic fields and we just weren't talking about it and it was just kind of like household chatter rather than actually the state being able to recognize it. I was like, we have to create almost a database of creative West Virginians and give them a chance to tell their story, share their work. I think that my dream changes a lot, but I know that it involves producing
0: film. Zane, a short documentary, was shown online to crowdfunding backers in April. Howell is working on in-person and film festival showings later this year. Last July, thousands of residents in southeastern Kentucky endured historic flash flooding that took lives and devastated communities. One of the hardest hit towns was Hindman in Knott County. Stu Johnson from W.E.K.U. has this
13: update. Hindman and Knott County suffered significantly due to last July's flooding. Well over a dozen residents, including four children, died in what's been labeled a hundred-year flood. Blanche Taylor is site-based coordinator for flood distribution with the Hindman Methodist Church. She says the community is working hard to support one another. In addition to Kentucky, Taylor says the Appalachian community has seen work teams from Nebraska, Ohio, Virginia, and South Carolina.
2: We had one group of twelve came in the week of Thanksgiving and worked the whole week of Thanksgiving and they were so touched by this community. They're coming back in June and bringing 50 workers.
13: Groups from New York and Pennsylvania are also scheduled to come in June. Crews have been working on roof, flooring, insulation, ramps and porch projects. Hindman residents for a while had to go 25 miles to pick up their mail and hazard when the local post office was damaged but progress is being made in many areas. Blanche Taylor says new housing is on the horizon.
2: There has been more hope now that we're getting more help, more homes built. Uh, just last week, uh, Knott County was able to obtain property by the Knott County Sportsplex, and they'll be building 57 homes out there.
13: The long-term recovery group case manager chair is Heather Smith. She says her church got involved early on in recovery, welcoming teams from Tennessee. Smith says she's a case manager in her day job, so it was a good fit for her. And again, progress is coming along. We've
4: got quite a few people back in their homes. And um, we've probably got, just with the long term, we've probably got 60 to 70 back in the homes already. And um, we've actually been working with some other homes and um, getting them started.
13: Ask how many not Countyans lost their homes in the flood. Smith said she didn't have that figure offhand. The Nod County native said many people are still struggling and stressed, particularly when it rains. Smith says for some teenagers, including friends of her 15-year-old son, it's been difficult.
4: Because Some of the kids saw what really went on, and know some of his friends were flooded, and so they've, they've had a hard time dealing with getting back
2: on their feet, and some had to still live in campers. So that's been a problem, you know, they don't have a home.
5: We had one that got crushed up by the slip of the mountain coming in on it.
13: The Jacobs and Pippa in Pippa Passes in Knott County didn't lose their home, but almost lost something more valuable, one or possibly two lives. I think the most I remember is I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Eighty-five-year-old Daniel Jacobs lives along Highway 899 with his wife, Ruby. They've been married 64 years and went through a traumatic experience in the early morning hours of July 29th. Ruby was in a weakened state of health. Daniel said the water was coming up some three feet over the retaining wall. Trying to get to the car, Ruby got caught up in raging water. Both feel there was divine intervention, with Daniel's one arm around his wife and the other steered to a calm area to grab on. Ruby said she was assured the Lord would pull them through.
2: I wasn't a bit afraid. I wasn't. I never said anything about being afraid, did I? I wasn't afraid at all. But I just knew that if He said we were going to get out at some point, He was going to get us out, and and that's what happened.
5: I I said after it was all over with. I said, uh, you know, He He walked on the water and he pulled us out of the water.
13: Still, at one point while fighting the rapid waters, Daniel said Ruby told him to let her go. His response was, if you go, I go. Jacobs says it was a storm they will never forget. They both say their three daughters and son worked hard to clean and salvage items and transport drinking water to the area. Jacobs says there's a feeling of renewal seen in his family and the broader community. I have a, a cousin that lost his home his sister lost her home,
5: and their mother's home was destroyed. And, but they are fighting backs. they're fighting back. They're back much better.
13: And that is a theme some nine months after the record-breaking flooding that hit a large section of Kentucky. Optimism with the realization it won't happen overnight like the flooding that rolled through the region. I'm Stu Johnson in Lexington.
0: One of the places struck by those Kentucky floods was the Heinemann Settlement School, home to the Appalachian Writers' Workshop. It's a place where writers gather to learn and teach. One of the instructors this year is poet Doug Van Gundy, who's been a fixture on the West Virginia music and art scene for decades. His first poetry anthology, A Life Above Water, was published in 2007, and his work has appeared in poetry journals all over the place. Van Gundy directs the MFA writing program at West Virginia Wesleyan College in Buchanan. Bill Lynch spoke with Van Gundy about poetry, disasters, and tattoos.
14: This is called The Flooded Town. Forget for a moment what's to come. Reek of diesel, swollen drywall crumbling to dust, liberated spores of mold in full black bloom, and notice this, an empty town at the exact moment the waters crest nearly silent and everything still. Places that were backyards and ravines and parking lots and will be again are, for the moment, backwaters where ducks and wading birds survey their temporary territory. A green heron perches on a state road sign. A pair of mallards paddle past the drowned steps of the Baptist church. In the stillness, clouds are breaking up and sunlight is spilling through. This is not the optimistic ending, the silver sentimental lining. No one will be spared their share of sorrow, their little ladleful of loss. Misery has a long reach. But for now, one might be forgiven for seeing them as beautiful, these sunken, unpeopled streets. Tell me about the poem. The the poem actually happened in two phases. Um, The first draft of it came about during the bad floods in southern West Virginia um, three or four years ago. I had the the bones of it and some notes. Then I I had never gone back to it. Then last July, last July 28th, I was at the Appalachian Writers Week at the Heinemann Settlement School with 70 other writers when Troublesome Creek, which flows in front of the school, went from about four inches in depth to over 20 feet in depth in just a couple of hours. <clears throat> we were all evacuated from our lodgings and gathered in one common sort of higher ground building and just watched the water come up over everything. And we were there. We were trapped by the by the high water for a few hours. It was nothing compared to what the people who lived down there suffered, but we were there. I was there. And a lot of my writer friends, we all talked about how this is going to be a, a really well-documented flood because there were so many writers there at one time. And uh, Melissa Helton, who works at the Hyman Settlement School and is a wonderful poet in her own right, she came up with the idea of a, of an anthology and uh, pitched it to the University of uh, the University Press of Kentucky. And they said yes. And so she put out a call for, for people to send in work that had been inspired by the flood. And I had written a couple of pieces, uh, just trying to process it for myself, and remembered the sort of notes of this poem and went back into it and filled it in with some specific details from uh, the more recent flood. I lived in Marlinton in in 1996 when Marlinton suffered uh, such a, a big flood and uh, Greenbar Valley was was pretty hard hit, so I had memories of that, and then the more recent memories of Eastern Kentucky and July of of twenty two.
3: I've heard sometimes that uh,
14: difficult times make for good art. I think that there's a correlation, but maybe not a causation. I think that in difficult times we turn to art. Either to comfort us or to assure us that we're not alone or we're not the only people that have felt this way or these sorts of things have happened to, or to, in the case of makers, to sort of process our own feelings and our own experiences. I, I don't believe that the myth that, you know, suffering causes great art. I think suffering causes suffering, but I think that art, whether making it or reading it, looking at it, listening to it can help ease suffering. And and for me poetry is the way that I make sense of the world. If I'm trying to figure something out how I feel about something I just start writing. Maybe it'll be a poem, maybe it won't, but I figure it out on a page with a pencil or a pen and start from there. For me that's how I that's the lens that is helps me see most clearly. Let's talk about your writer's life. What was your start? Well, my mother tells me that I've been writing Poem since I was about three, and says that I, I wrote a poem for my grandmother. Actually, I can't remember not writing. I started writing poems seriously. This I was about fourteen years old. I was watching the Dick Cavett show because John Gilgood was on, and I had done some community theater, and I had seen him in in Arthur. I just admired him as an actor, and I thought, oh, I, I want to be an actor. I'm going to watch John Gilgood, and at the end of the interview. Dick Cavett said, "You know, Sir John, um, last time you were here, you you told us a poem. Do would you have one on hand? You know." And he said, "Oh, in these times, I always turn to Houseman, A. E. Houseman, the great Shropshire English poet of the early part of the twentieth century." Then he recited this poem from memory, called Breeden Hill. At the end of that, here's this dignified, strong man that I admired his performances and his intelligence. He said the whole thing with his eyes closed and he opened his eyes and a tear ran down his cheek. And I thought, I didn't know we could do this. I didn't know that this was possible. I just had incredible trouble. I have chill bumps telling you the story. So I went to the wonderful Elkins Randolph County Public Library, which was my home away from home growing up, and found that poem and took the book out of the library and memorized it. That was the start. I, I saw the, the power that poetry could have not only to move us, not only to evoke a place visually, but really to serve as a kind of a time machine. You know, as he read that poem, I had this wonderful experience of, of sort of synesthesia where I was watching him, but I could see the place he was describing sort of half in the back of my mind while I was watching him. And then I felt the emotions that were being described, you know. And suddenly, you know, I was I was on top of a hill in Shropshire on a sunny Sunday morning in about 1923. I'm going to ask, do you
3: still remember the poem?
14: I do. It's called Breeden Hill. In summertime, on Breeden, the bells they ring so clear. Round both the shires they ring them in steeples far and near, a wondrous noise to hear. And here of a summer morning, my love and I would lie. And see the colored counties and watch the birds so high about us in the sky. The bells would ring on Sunday in steeples far away. Come all to church, good people. Good people come and pray. But here my love would stay. And I would rise and answer among the springing time. Oh, peal upon our wedding. And we will hear the chime and come to church in time. But when the snows at Christmas on Breeden top were strewn, my love rose up so early and stole out unbeknown and went to church alone. They told the one bell only, groom there was none to see, and the mourners followed after and would not wait for me. The bells still ring on Bredon and still the steeples hum, Come all to church, good people. Oh, noisy bells be dumb I hear you I will come that is amazing uh so as a, a writer and a poet
3: uh have you had I guess periods so to speak like 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 a painter have the things that you that you are attracted to as far as subject matter has it changed over the course of your of your writing life
14: Yeah it has there are uh, there are some themes some images that have been with me forever. Um, I can't imagine a time when I'm not writing about crows or Ravens I don't know why they keep showing up but they've been showing up since I was a kid place is I- incredibly important to me in my work I write a lot about where I'm from I write a lot about West Virginia as a geographical place but also as kind of a a state of mind but I often I often find that a lot of what I write even when I when I go somewhere else I write about being in that place so I have poems that are set in wales or poems that are set in the north of england or poems that are set you know at my grandparents house they were just north of morgantown in southwest pa so i've got a lot of poems about those places um rainer maria rilke the great bohemian poet i guess he he said in the letters to a young poet he said if you If you were locked into a prison, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you were locked away in jail for the rest of your life, you would still have your childhood, the memories of childhood, that deep wellspring of inspiration. I'm often going back to childhood, to little moments that you don't think of as defining, but that I keep thinking about. I think it's probably good practice to follow your obsessions.
3: I'm going to ask you about your tattoos because it's a random question. You probably don't get a lot of, as far as for a literary discussion. No, that's for sure. How many tattoos you got, and, and what they, they have much meaning? Obviously, I think that the the crow there has one.
14: I have five so far. The first one I got I got was a was the the motto of Jan van Eyck. Mm-hmm. It sounds terribly pretentious when I tell you about it, but it it really struck me. This is a guy who basically invented oil painting. He was you know the earliest of the Flemish masters. My F- Van Gundy is a Flemish name, so I've always been interested in the history of that place. And I've always loved loved art, visual art. Jan van Eyck's motto was Als Ich Khan, which is old Dutch Dutch, and it just means the best I could do. And I thought, what a great motto for an artist. You just like and it's and it seemed to me to be very, very Appalachian in its way. Cause it's sort of like sort of humble, but also like, well, this is the best I could do. So it's like, it's like the humble brag. I, I just really liked how you could, depending on your mood, uh, how you could see it. So that was the first one I got. I got the liar of Orpheus because Orpheus was the best musician and the best poet. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty, pretty aspirational as someone who is both. And then I have an Italian greyhound dog that I love almost impossibly um, and and irrationally. And so I have a tattoo of an Italian greyhound and then a former student of mine and wanted to get tattoos with me. And so we went off and just a quick one day. So I have a, an origami crane on the inside of my wrist. My wife makes origami. So that's sort of for her. And then the most recent one is a, a raven that was from an old woodcut, an uh, English woodcut of a raven. I saw it in a book and I was like that. I've been wanting a raven tattoo forever. And I saw it and I was like, that's the one. So. And there's something really wonderful to me about about tattooing. You know, my first one is is you know it's it's not in English, but it's language. I, I really love. It. It's sort of an inverse of the the biblical right. It's it's the flesh made word, and so I'm really fascinated by when people get text tattooed on their bodies. That's that's interesting to me, and and that idea of uh, I mean, as a writer, you hope for a little bit of permanence. You know, you hope your your work will last, and tattoo is pretty, pretty permanent.
3: So Doug Van Gundy, thanks for being on Inside Appalachia.
14: My pleasure.
2: Waves on the sea, how they roll.
0: Tilly winds how they do blow.
14: My own true love got drowned it in the deep, and the ship never
2: got to the shore. Well, first on the deck was porter of the ship. Rough looking feller was he, saying I care no more for my wife nor my child than I do
0: for. The- Van Gundy is set to return to the Hyman Settlement School in July where he'll teach the poetry section at this year's Appalachian Writers Workshop. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Frank George, Amethyst Kia, Jerry Milnes, Chris Knight, and Born Old. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at inappalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
3: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.